Now today, I'm going to be uh, preaching a message that I've called, uh, What's in a Name? Okay, and I actually, the, from the famous line from Romeo and Juliet, uh, and I was going to earn extra points if Jill was here, but I don't see her in this service because Jill was my freshman English teacher, and she was responsible for, and I'm sorry, I apologize, uh, she was responsible for teaching me Romeo and Juliet, and one of the things that I want to ask you today, I want to start with this question, what comes to your mind when I say the word Christian? If I said, would you define for me what a Christian is, how would you answer that? And my guess is, if I interviewed 10 of you out in the lobby after the service, I would probably get at least nine different answers about what it means to be a Christian. Now, here's something I find interesting. Did you know that the original first followers of Jesus were not known as Christians? In fact, in Acts 11, verse 26, it tells us this. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, what we know is that Antioch, the church in Antioch, this is 10 to 12 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and the founding of the very first church in Jerusalem that took place on Pentecost. So 10 years, 12 years later, before they were being called Christians. This is after the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem and the persecution that broke out and when Christians were scattered, uh, believers were scattered all over the known world. And actually this term in Greek, it actually means adhering to or belonging to Christ. It means that somebody like a possession, it's a type of term you'd add onto the end of the word uh, Christian, Christos, and then you add this little thing on the backside, which means like there's ownership. In here, the, the way that you'd speak of a slave. The, these are people who belonged or adhered to Jesus. And we find out that they're first called this in this Greek Roman uh, city of Antioch. Now, we don't really know where the term came from. I read this week in preparation a whole bunch of different ideas about where the term comes from. Some believe that it's what they named themselves because they were followers of Jesus and they wanted everyone to know they belonged to Jesus, so they gave themselves this name to distinguish them from the Jews who were in the city. Uh, other theologians like John Stott suggest that it was just a natural outgrowth, that these people, they, were, they belonged to Jesus, they followed Jesus, and it just became, they, those are the Jesus people, those are those Christians, those people who belong to Jesus, who follow Jesus. And I even read others that believe maybe it was a derogatory term at first, that the culture around them were using it as a, as a slam against them. You are slaves. You, you people, all you do is talk about and think about Jesus. In fact, there's some precedent uh, a few centuries later, both the Methodists and the Puritans, that those names started out as derogatory terms that they just began to embrace and say, yeah, that's exactly who we are. And so maybe the Christian community did the same thing. But what we know is this word Christian, the apostles uh, approved of it because here's what First Peter says. Peter's writing at the time of this really intense persecution that's breaking out against the church, and he says this, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
So we can see that the, the apostles had embraced this name, and, and from the time it was given, it's used. But one of the things I find is crazy is what were they known as before this name was given to them? Before this 10 to 12 year period, before this name emerged, what were they known as? Well, we actually already saw it in Acts eleven twenty six. 26. Look at it one more time. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And in fact, Something I find crazy in the New Testament, the word Christian only appears three times total in all the New Testament. You already have seen two of them here today. In fact, I'll tell you the third one. The third one is in the book of Acts when King Agrippa says to Paul, if you keep talking, maybe even I'll become a Christian. That's number three. So that's all three times the word Christian is used in the New Testament. But the word disciple is used 281 times in the New Testament alone. In fact, in the book of Acts, the book about the birth of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit in believers, the creation of the church, it's used 230 times just in the book of Acts. Now, in case you're wondering, at the end of this sermon, I'm not going to say, so at Silver Creek we will no longer be calling ourselves Christians, but see, there's something important that I think we need to face today. You see, because each of us have a different definition of the word Christian, and everyone you talk to on the streets has a different definition of the word Christian, we can just keep redefining the word Christian to make us okay. We just change the definition to suit our beliefs, to suit our practices, because we just will tweak it a little bit here and there, because the Bible doesn't have a lot to say, only three verses specifically about this term Christian. But disciple, on the other hand, the Bible is crystal clear about. This word disciple we'll find all throughout Scripture, and this word disciple is a challenge for us, because it's easy for me to say, I'm a Christian. But if I pose this question, are you a follower of Jesus? Well, that's something different altogether. So the question is, are we, are we following Jesus or have we settled for believing in Jesus? Now, wrestle with that for a minute. Have we settled for believing in Jesus or are we followers of Jesus? So here's what I want to do today. I want to look at Matthew chapter 4 at when Jesus called his very first disciples. And I want to actually look at what does it mean for us today in 2023 to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So let's look at this together. Matthew 4, verse 18 through 22. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water. For they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come and follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, First of all, have you ever wondered, reading this, why did these very first disciples follow Jesus? Because see, in the movies that I watched when I was a kid, they made it look like basically this guy wearing a white bathrobe with a blue or red sash, his, low, his hair flowing in the wind, walked up along the shore, 
spoke to the disciples, and they just immediately drop what they were doing and they fall. It's like it's a Jedi mind trick or something. Like he's, he's making them do something. Yes, Master. Uh, it, but I think if you understand the context, we'll better understand what's happening here. So to understand what's going on in this first century culture, we have some extra historical tools that we can use. One of them is this thing called the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of writing from first century Jewish teachers and rabbis that tells us about life in the first century for Jews. It teaches us that young boys at age five began what's called Torah school. At age five, you were enrolled in Torah school where you were taught the first five books of the Bible. That's the Torah, the books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those were the foundation of the curriculum. So they, were, they learned how to read, how to write, everything out of those five books. In fact, they committed huge chunks of those five books of the Torah to memory during this period of time. This lasted for five years until they were 10 years old. So from five to 10, they studied the Torah together. And at age 10, there was a weeding out period. Actually, only the best and brightest students were allowed to continue their education. The rest of them were sent home to begin their careers with their fathers, with their families. So whatever it was that your father did, you would go home and you would learn that skill, you would learn that trade, you would enter into the family business, start training at age 10. But if you were one of the best, the brightest, the most gifted students, you were invited to continue your training. So you'd continue training and you'd begin work where you left off. You'd start with the book of Joshua and you would work through what we know as the Old Testament now from Joshua through Malachi. Now this period of time lasted to about the age 17. Interesting, it's about the same age as we now graduate seniors from high school. At about that time, at about the age of 17, most students went home to start that process of training with their fathers and getting engaged in the family business, except for a few of the very brightest students who now made the second cut. Those students, from this point forward, who decided they wanted to make a life of religious study, a career of religious study, their next step was to go and find a rabbi, go and find a teacher, Someone that you admired, someone that you uh, desired to become like, and if you found one, you would go and you would sit down at their feet. At sitting at their feet, that was your way of, requ of re requesting that they teach you. That was your posture saying, I want to learn from you. And the rabbis would start to examine you. They would start to question you. The rabbis were got to be very selective because you have to understand the very cream of the crop, the best job in the uh, first century Jewish world was to become one of these rabbis, one of these teachers of the law. They were revered amongst their culture. There were no football players and basketball players. There were no rock stars. The rabbi was the desired position of the day. So now they've made the cut two times. They go sit at these feet of these rabbi and the rabbi get to be really selective. They're going to grill this potential candidate. They're going to go through all of their understanding of the law. They're going to see what they know. They're going to see uh, what they're made of because they can pick from the smartest, most talented boys to be their disciples. Now, if they were chosen, you would be enter into this relationship where you began, began to be instructed by, taught by, and follow this uh, rabbi or teacher. 
Now, one of the authors I really love, his name's Ray Vanderlyn. He's a historian who uh, specializes in this first century Israel. And he said, in those days, the greatest uh, praise that you could give to any uh, disciple, the Hebrew word is Talmud, any young Talmud, the greatest praise you could give them was that the dust of your rabbi is all over you. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. And that didn't mean you need to take a shower. What that meant was you followed your rabbi so closely and you've heard everything he said, you've seen everything he's done, that everything he stepped in has splashed up on you. You're following him so closely that you can see the fruit of it, the effect of it on your life. And that really gives us a picture of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. In fact, here's the definition that he uses, and I just love this. He says, a Talmud, a disciple is someone who seeks not only to know what his master knows, but also to do what his master does. You see, there's two elements here that are really important for us. First is to learn. A disciple is a learner. See, you want to know what the master knows. My friends, you need to listen to me today. If you want to be a disciple, there are no shortcuts that involve uh, not going through a process of learning and instruction. There is a lot to learn. If you're serious about being a disciple, then you are going to need to be an active learner. It means you're going to need to listen to messages. It means you're going to need to read your Bible. You're going to need to read books. You're going to want to listen to podcasts. You're going to want to grow in your faith and know more about Jesus. And it's not strictly on an academic basis, friends. If you love something and you care about something, you probably want to know more about it. And so we pursue knowledge, we pursue knowing, but that's only half of the discipleship formula. We need to know, but what else do we need? Not just to know what the master knows, but to do what the master does. So this really takes us then back to, you understand this now, we go back to Matthew 4, understanding this world, and we find out that these guys are out on the boat fishing. What does that tell us about the original disciples? They didn't make the cut. These were not guys who had been chosen for their academic prowess, for their skill, for their classroom ability. These are fishermen. They had not made the cut. This is the B team. This is the JV. These are not guys who made it at the top level. And you need to let that sink in. When Jesus is going to build his team, when he's going to build his squad, when he's going to start a movement, he chooses those that others had passed over. He chooses the B team. So, of course, when a rabbi with all of this authority, with all of this power, with all of this wisdom, they're constantly talking about Jesus' words. No one speaks like this. No one looks like, no one talks like Jesus. No one acts like Jesus. Now, this rabbi walks up to them and says, I want you guys. To follow me. Now you can see why they were like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I, I want this. And they left everything behind to follow him. So here's what I want to do today. I want to just look at a few points together that I see out of Matthew chapter 4 that show us what it means to be a disciple, to help us today as we process through this. So here's number one, if you're a note taker. Number one is this. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't choose the best, he chooses the willing. 
he skipped all the wise guys of his day. The great scholars lived in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers of the day lived in Athens, in the Greek world. The most powerful men were in Rome. Jesus didn't choose any of them. He chose people so ordinary that they're actually comical when you read the story. There's no rabbis amongst Jesus' disciples. There's no teachers. There's no religious experts. There's not even a synagogue ruler amongst them. In fact, half of them are fishermen. Others are tax collectors. And one of them is a zealot, a group of radicalized troublemakers in the Roman world. Jesus goes after those that have been passed over, the misfits, the B-squad, the leftovers, because you need to understand this. The work that Jesus was going to do in this world was not going to come through the disciples' abilities for him, but from what he was going to do through them. And people who have a lot of natural talent, a lot of natural ability, people who think they're, uh, they've got everything to offer the world, often their biggest uh, downfall, that pride, is that they cannot lean on someone else's power or understanding because they feel like they have everything they need in and of themselves. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, 20 through 29 tells it to us like this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Amen to that, right? Amen. Not many were influential. Amen. Not many were of noble birth. Think if, if God just used people who fit that description, we would all... Anyone noble in here? No, okay, so let's go on, verse 27. But God chose, <laughs> I, this applies to me, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. See, Jesus taught us that his power in and through the weakest of vessels is infinitely greater than our own ability, our own talent, or our own strength by itself. That we, first and foremost, need to remember that God doesn't choose the best, He chooses the willing. Here's the second thing. God chose us, not we, Him. God chose us, not we, Him. See, remember, in the story before, as I explained, the normal way that a uh, disciple became a follower of a rabbi was they chose a rabbi. They sought out a rabbi, and they went and sat at that rabbi's feet. But Jesus didn't choose his disciples like that. The disciples didn't come and choose Jesus. He went and chose them. Do you know what kind of confidence that was supposed to give them? And do you know what kind of confidence that's supposed to give you? See, one of the things you'll notice throughout the New Testament is how often Jesus and the apostles bring up this idea that him choosing us is supposed to instill in us an enormous confidence. If you want some homework this week, then I want you to if you just write this in your margin. If you need some homework this week, some reading, read the book of Ephesians. It's a short read. But you'll see over and over in the book of Ephesians this general theme that God chose you and what that choosing of God to us, what that means for our life. Let me give you an example of this that Jesus speaks in John 15, verse 16. Jesus says this, You didn't choose me, 
But I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You see, you may not feel confident about your own abilities to navigate life or your future, but we can be confident that God, who chose us, who called us, who's made promises to us, will complete what He said He would complete in our life. See, normally when my confidence fails, my confidence doesn't fail because I stop believing Jesus can do something. My confidence usually fails because I stop believing Jesus can do that thing through me in my life. It's not that I stop believing Jesus can do it. I know he can do it. My question is whether he can do it in me or whether he can do it through me. Think of that story in uh, Matthew 14 where Peter gets out and walks on the water. Peter jumps out of the boat. He starts to walk on water and he begins to sink. And we all say, well, Peter lost his confidence in Jesus. Did he? Jesus was doing just fine. Jesus wasn't sinking at all, was he? Jesus still was able to walk on water. I don't think Peter lost his confidence that Jesus could walk on water. Peter lost his confidence that Jesus could enable him to walk on water, that Jesus could do it in his life and through his life. And usually that's where I lose confidence in the same way. Friends, the fact that Jesus called us, the fact that Jesus chose us, should instill an enormous confidence in our life that he can do what he says he will do. Let's look at some verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Isaiah 46.11. What I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. So friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. A lot of us feel like, hey, in my marriage, maybe your marriage is in a difficult spot, and you feel like, well, obviously if Jesus was here, Jesus would know how to love my wife, but you doubt the fact that he can help you to do that. We need to remember, he called you. He chose you. He has a plan for your life, and he will not let you down. The Bible is clear about that, okay? So that's the next one. Number three, I love this. Our primary call as disciples is to be with Jesus. Our primary call is to be with Jesus. What did he say in verse 19? He said, follow me. He didn't tell them where they were going, did he? He didn't tell them what their assignments were going to look like. He didn't tell them what the plan was. He just said, come and see. Follow me. Be with me. Be with me. Because being with Jesus is what it's all about. If you want to be transformed, if you want to become like him, you become like him by being with him. To become like him, you have to know him. To know him. You have to know His Spirit and His Word. And the only way that you know anything about anybody is what? Spending time together. You can never truly know someone or know anything unless you invest time into the relationship. 
So this is so much more than showing up to church on Sunday mornings and hearing me preach once a week. This is so much more than us just just taking a little bite once a week and thinking, think about if this was your, your natural health. Think about if all you ever did was eat one big meal a week. How would your health be the rest of the week? You would, you would be left feeling empty, without energy, without power. You, you would be left feeling weak. Friends, in our spiritual life, the same is true. We, we need to regularly be spending time with Jesus. The Bible tells us this in Jeremiah 29, 13. If you seek me and find me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you believe that promise? The Bible says, if you seek him, you will find him. So seek him. Church, this is important that we understand this. That our, we need to increase our desire and our pursuit of Jesus, of wanting to be with him, of, of prioritizing the time that we're spending with Jesus. It's why we tell you, you need to be in the word of God every single day day. It's why we tell you to to hunger and to read books and to ask questions and to listen to sermons and to pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray in the Spirit. Pray. Seek after God. Why do we tell you this? Because the more time you spend seeking Him, the more time you spend finding Him. And the more time you find Him, the more transformed you become. And the more transformed you become, the more fruit you bear. And the more time you spend with Him, the more and more of Jesus we get to see in your life. Do you want your thoughts to be like His thoughts? Your ways to be like His ways? Your words to be like His words? Then you have to be with Him so that you're being transformed. Friends, would you agree that the world is in desperate need of Jesus? I just look around and I think, oh, Jesus. The world is in desperate need of Jesus. And Jesus has decided that the way in which he is going to work in this world is that as we spend time with him and abide in him, he will bear fruit in and through our lives. He will use you as an ambassador. He will use you as his hands and his feet in this world, as we spend time with Jesus. Friends, the answer to our problems as a country are not going to come from the White House. They're going to come because we, as God's people, abide in Christ. Spend time in his presence, allowing him to transform us so that he can work in and through our lives. Do you want the dust of the rabbi to be all over you? Then you've got to have his word and his spirit inside of you. You've got to spend time daily in his presence. Here's the next thing, number four. To follow Jesus, some of you are going to love this one. Follow Jesus, you have to leave it all. Verse 22, immediately they left their boats and their father. Now, why did he identify these two things? Why did he identify these two things? They left their boats and their father. Because these are the two most significant things in most of our life. They left their careers, their livelihoods, how they took care of themselves, and they left behind their most significant relationships. They left behind the two things that are normally the two things that hold people back. 
They, they followed Jesus no matter what the cost was in their life. Now, I'm just going to tell you, most of you aren't going to have to leave your careers or leave your families in order to follow Jesus. But I can tell you that we baptized a girl here from our high school youth group a number of years ago who on the day that we baptized her lost relationship and was excommunicated with half of her family because of their family's beliefs. And I will tell you that around the world, that is a common occurrence. And I will tell you that many around the world choose Jesus knowing not only does it excommunicate them from their family, but puts their life in serious danger. And what Jesus is telling us here, friends, is that the order of our priorities is important when it comes to our pursuit of Jesus. Jesus cannot just be an add-on to our life. If we are going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it means that first place, first allegiance, first heart, first of everything goes into our relationship with Jesus. That there's nothing else that takes precedent over our relationship with Jesus. For some of us, it might mean that we have to adjust our work schedules. For some of you, you may have to change your travel habits. For some of you, it may have to change your careers. There are times where being a disciple means that we make choices that go against the flow and against the stream of our society where we say, actually, I'm going to put my discipleship, my following of Jesus into first place in my life. I know the rest of my friends and culture aren't living this way, but I'm called to live in a different way. Friends, in the world in which we live, this is really important. Sometimes we feel like the other stuff that we invest our life into is so culturally important that we lose sight of the fact that our first most important alliance or allegiance is as a follower of Jesus. That gets first place in our life. You guys with me? Okay, number five. Jesus commands us to spiritually reproduce. Jesus commands us to spiritually reproduce. Verse 19, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, just as Jesus was on a mission to seek and save those who were lost, so too was that mission given to his disciples. He called them with a purpose, with a, with a plan. He called them from the beginning. In the first sentence, he spoke to them. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This was an essential element to their discipleship. It wasn't just something that a few of them were going to be involved in doing. From the very beginning, Jesus made it clear. This is my desire for your life. Again, John 15, 8, he says, When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Remember the Great Commission, the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. They're gathered together. He's about to ascend into heaven. He's risen from the dead. They're asking him all kinds of questions about the end times, right? They're like, is it now at the time that you're going to? And he's like, okay, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all my commands that I've given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always even to the ends of the age. You see, what Jesus is telling us 
is he's commissioning us to this day with this same commission that Jesus lived on this earth and had. Remember, last week, uh, Steve talked to us about Jesus and his ministry to the poor and to the blind and to the oppressed. Jesus has said, the things you see me doing, I want you to do them as well. The same way the Father has sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world. Here's your great commission. I want you to go. I want you to baptize. I want you to preach. I want you to teach. I want you guys to help other people find and discover God's dream and His plan for their life. That's the mission we are on as a church. If we are His disciples, it means that we are in a constant process of allowing Jesus to teach us how to fish for men. But we're living in a culture, friends, that's starting to try more and more to tell you that your faith is too private to talk about. That these are off-limits conversations. That's good for you, that's your truth, but it's not good for me. And friends, we must, in this culture, continue to remember that being a disciple of Jesus means that we live our life in such a way that people ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. And then we give them the reason with gentleness and respect. The Bible calls us a city on a hill. The Bible says that we're to shine like lights in a dark world. So it is essential, friends, that we don't only shine when we close the doors and pull the blinds. That we have to shine for other people to see. God's called us to spiritually reproduce. And so, I'm going to give you a practical takeaway, and let me just let you in on a secret. It's the same one I give all the time. I so believe in this that I believe it will transform our church and our city if we really take it to heart. And that's this, for you to identify one person. One person person whom you, through prayer, with help of the Holy Spirit, can invest your life to seeing come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. One person. And I just want to tell you, can you imagine if the four or five hundred people who are going to hear this message today, can you imagine if we took this seriously? And every one of us said, I'm going to begin praying and seeking the Lord, trusting God and trusting the Spirit to share my life, to, to befriend, to, to, to love on, to care for, to serve this one person in prayer and in hope that this one person would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What impact would this one church be able to have on our community if we really took this to heart? What impact would our church be able to have on the city of Silverton? What impact would that have on the Willamette Valley? What impact would that have to the ends of the earth if a church said, I'm going to be steadfast in my pursuit that this one person that God would lay on my heart, that I would have the opportunity to share my hope sometime this year with this person? Do you realize who it is that's called us? Do you realize who it is that we get to follow? Do you realize how special it is to get to be a disciple 
of this teacher, Jesus Christ? Do you understand how wonderful it is to have His Spirit in us, teaching us and instructing us, to have the Word of God? I just have said this so many times recently, I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot, but do you know how lucky we are to live in a day and a time where we have the Word of God? People literally have been martyred to death so that we could have the Word of God in our language. We all own Bibles. In fact, even non-believers in our Western culture own Bibles somewhere in their house. If you go to a hotel anywhere in the United States, you open up the nightstand, the Gideons have put a Bible there. We are surrounded by access to God's Word, and yet we find so many reasons why this isn't the right time. But church, the world is desperate for us to wake up, for us to allow God to transform us. Remember, He has no rival. He has no equal. There's no solution like Jesus. David Platt, in his great book that I just love called Follow Me, says it like this. If He, Jesus, is who He says He is, He's worthy of more than our church attendance and our casual association. He's worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. See, some of us call ourselves Christian, but have never actually become disciples. Band, you can come up. And today, what my desire for you is, is that we would really search our heart. We would really seek, am I a Christian because my grandmother was a Christian and I went to VBS when I was a kid and I believe that Jesus exists or am I a follower of Jesus? Am I somebody who's spending time with the Lord? Am I somebody who's investing my life in a relationship with Jesus? Am I somebody that's allowing Him to lead me and guide me? Am I somebody that's becoming more like Jesus or somebody that just knows stuff about Him? And it's a challenge for us to consider today. And the good news for each one of you is no matter what you answer that question, Jesus desires for you to take the next step. His desire is to show himself to you more fully and completely. His desire, if you seek him, you find him. His desire is for you to find him. He's the worst hide-and-go-seek player of all time. Because he wants to be found. He wants you to find him. So if you seek him, you find him. So here's what I want to do together as a church today. I want to seek him. No matter where you're at in your walk with the Lord, I want you to seek Him. I want you to be able, honestly, in, the, in His presence today as we sing, to say, God, I want to grow to be more like You. I want to know You more. I, I, I'm sorry, God, for the things that I've allowed, priorities in my life that shouldn't have those priorities. I'm sorry for the areas, God, where I've sought after other things. My prayer today is, God, is that we would seek you first. That we would pursue you first. That you would increase in us our desire to be with you and at your feet. 
that you would increase in us our desire to become like you, that you'd help us in our hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you'd help us in our pursuit of your kingdom and of your will on this earth, that you'd help us, God, to leave behind our ways and our foolish ways of living and the sins that so easily entangle us, and that we would run towards you with perseverance. God, I pray in this place today that we would be disciples of Jesus who come running towards you 